Good afternoon. So I guess I'm not in church today, huh? Good afternoon. Thank you. So first of all, I want to thank Kenny and Nina uh, for bringing us together, and more importantly, for the work they've done for the last 25 years. And I'm sure it started before then. And I also want to thank all of you for being on this important journey. Um, this is actually a very difficult, interesting, challenging time. We're in the midst of a paradigm shift. The paradigm is going to shift, and which way it shifts in, in part depends on what we collectively do and don't do. So I want to talk about the shifting paradigm, where we were and where we are going, um, and our role in bringing the kind of world about that will be sustaining, that will be loving, that will support all of us. And as um, we just heard, the earth may survive, but we and many other life forms may not, unless we care in a very different way. So I want to take you back and just have you look a little bit at history. And I had some prepared remarks, and Darren, my research assistant, helped me prepare those remarks. But I'm a student of jazz, and for those of you who don't know jazz, Jazz is where you practice, where you get ready, but then you change based on the environment. So you're constantly willing to actually improvise based on the environment. And after hearing the wonderful talks last night, I decided I needed to improvise a little bit. So I'm going to be talking about interbeing, class, and personhood. And these are maybe unusual terms, so I want to ground them just a little bit for you. Now, most of you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about Descartes. <laughs> uh, but Descartes is sort of at the fountainhead of Western thought with other people like Hobbes and Locke. And Descartes made a number of errors. He's most famous in today for the proposition, I think, therefore I am. But he also believed that there was a deep divide between the mind and the body and Hobbes built on this and talked about a deep divide between nature and human beings. And it actually harkens back even further than Locke and Hobbes and Descartes. If you think of Genesis 1:26 of the Old Testament, which I'm sure after you finish thinking about Descartes this morning, you turn to your Bible. <laughs> and what Genesis 1:26 tells us is that God gave man, man, dominion over the earth, over the fish, over the seas, and all the living things. And so here we have the fundamental problem that we're grappling with today. And even though we don't think in those terms, that problem still defines how we see ourselves and how we see the world. Uh, and it's not just the problem exists. There are forces in society that would take this split between us and each other, between ourselves and the body, between us and the earth, and strategically use it to stoke anxiety. Now, this is a chart, and I don't know how well you can read it, but basically what this chart shows is that in America, with Obama in the White House, increasing number of Americans are threatened and feel unconscious anxiety about the diversity that's happening in the country that people are moving further 
from public space, further from recognizing our interconnectedness and retreating into private space. Robert Putnam talked about this years ago. He was blasted. He said, diversity has the danger of creating more private space, of destroying collective action, of destroying a caring society. He wasn't talking about the United States. He was talking about Europe. Uh, but the same holds for the United States. Now, for those of us in this room, that seems odd because many of us celebrate diversity. But they're people. In fact, they're not people. They're corporations and, and entities telling us we should be afraid of the other, whoever the other might be. And the other might be a Native American, the other might be a Muslim, the other might be a black person, the other might be an immigrant. And they're constantly sending messages that the other is dangerous, the other is threatening us. And they use this anxiety, as Connie suggested, to attack government, to extend what Neil McLean calls disaster capitalism. Now, in doing that, they not only hurt black people, Latinos, poor whites, all of us, they hurt the environment because they create a regime in which we can't regulate those big things called corporations. Uh, and they dominate our lives. And they celebrate and institutionalize our separation. Most of the time when we deal with these issues, we deal with them at an economic level. We talk about we don't have enough. We talk about growing the economy. And there are all kinds of books written about the growing inequality. And it is a problem. Usually when we're talking about the growing inequality, we're talking about the growing economic inequality. But there are other ways in which we organize ourselves. So if you think about a book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Well, the writer basically says, people are voting against their self-interest. Actually, he got it wrong on many counts. They weren't voting against their self-interest, they were voting against potentially their economic interests. But we also organize ourselves along a, along a political axis about the ability to actually collectively act. But the third axis, which is the one that we ignore the most, is our sense of being. Who are we? Who are we collectively? And that question of who we are and the meaning of life leans heavily into spirituality. And much of our spiritual practice in the United States and the West is organized around Descartes, that is, extreme possessive individualism. Instead of understanding that we are into beings, understanding that we are connected, understanding that we are part of each other. And a radical over in Rome <laughs> makes the statement that corporations and the way we organize our markets actually threatens the entire planet. And I want to just linger on that for a moment, because it's not enough to have good feelings. We're talking about organizations. We're talking about structures. We're talking about design. Many of us, even though all of us care about the environment, many of us, when we leave here, we will get in those little vehicles and drive home, contributing to climate change. Not because we want climate change, but because, in many ways, that's how society is organized. We don't have public transportation system that allows us to move around. 
So it's, it's not enough to sort of have good thoughts and good feelings. We have to think about the structure and design of society. And when we look at what's happening in the United States and the world, we've had capitalism in this country and West for a long time. But in, since the 1970s, there's been an explosion of inequality. There's been an explosion of redesigning systems that concentrate wealth. There's been an explosion of retrenchment in terms of issues related to civil rights, voting rights. There's been a celebration of our separation and not our connectivity. How did that happen in the 1970s? What's propelling that? And this is what I want to suggest to you. A lot of people have talked about growing inequality. A lot of people talked about corporate greed. But we don't understand what's driving it. Is it just greed? I don't think so. I think it's profound anxiety. So what was going on in the 1970s? Well, first of all, we're getting rid of the 1960s. <laughs> so let's go back to the 1960s. The 1960s was a, change, a time of rapid change, but it was a time in which the country moved toward inviting the designated racial other to belong. We called it the Civil Rights Movement. And as a result of the Civil Rights Movement, there was growing anxiety among a certain hardcore group of whites. And the elites figured out how to use this anxiety and how to stoke this anxiety. They called it the Southern Strategy. Now think about this. In the early 60s, the South was solidly democratic and supported the New Deal. By the late 80s, the South has become solidly Republican, the heart and soul of the Tea Party. How did that happen? How did they move from being hostile to the party of Lincoln to embracing it? And how that happened was the elites played on the Southern fears of blacks and then later Latinos and others becoming part of this country, becoming part of the community. And so I talk about inclusion, but there are others who celebrate and talk about exclusion. In this room, we talk about equality. There are others that talk about social dominance, about the natural order of things, about not only one group being above, above another group, but about humans being more important than other life forms. They hearken back to Genesis 1:26. They believe that there is a natural hierarchy, and most of the people who believe that believe they are at the top of that hierarchy. And so there's a lot of concern. I talk about the circle of human concern, the circle of life concern. How do we actually celebrate that we are connected? First of all, we recognize we have a shared interbeing. We have a shared faith. And as important as it is to be connected, and it is important to recognize our connection, that's not enough. Because we can be connected in a hierarchical, in a destructive way. Think about only about the history of relationship between men and women. Men and women have been connected since the beginning of time. But for most of that time, 
Men dominated women. And so it was a relationship of dominance. So it's not enough just to be connected. We have to recognize what is the nature of the connection. It is a loving connection. Is it a respectful connection? Is it a mutual connection? Or is it a connection of exploitation and domination? And what I assert is that when we take the circle of concern and put not people, not life, not the earth at the middle, but put corporations in the middle of that concern, if that becomes our dominant concern, then all life forms are pushed outside the circle. And I think that's the challenge that we face today. But again, the engine that drives that, the engine that stokes that, is the fear of the other. So if we are going to address these issues around climate change, food, health, each other, we have to not only think about how we're related, we have to structure our societies, we have to structure our policies, we have to tell our stories, we have to engage in a practice that acknowledges our deep connection and our relationship with each other. So this is something, we actually talk, talk a lot about public and private in this country. And the, the, the current wisdom is that public is bad, public schools, public hospital, public housing, public transportation. Um, and yet, you only have to go back into the 1930s and 40s, and all things public was good. And now all things public is bad. A lot of that is because of who's in the public. The imagination, when people think about public transportation, they think of, black people, they think of Latinos, when people think of public housing. So it's a code. And the flip side of public in this vision is private. So the private becomes good. What I want to suggest is that instead of two domains, public and private, there are four. Public, which is collective action, which is the way we organize our capacity to do things. None of us built the Golden Gate Bridge by, them, by ourselves. Uh, none of us built the house we live in, most of us by ourselves. We, we do things best when we do things together. So, and this was Jefferson's idea, uh, but there was some concern that you had a lot of power in the public and it could be distorted. And so the other sphere was private. Now the private sphere is particularly interesting because it actually harkened back to Protestantism. Luther believed that private was where you went to commune with God. So it's a pretty cool space. It's like, where are you going? I'm going home, having a party, just me and God. Uh, <laughs> now, most people don't think that way anymore. Uh, but the, the sort of spiritual dimensions of private in Western society, in US society, still has currency. So when people talk about private, there's something really special about private. Uh, and oftentimes, when we talk about corporations, we actually, they've smuggled themselves into the private. They want to tell us they are, in essence, sacred. And if you think this is an exaggeration, literally, there's a case in the court right now where the corporation have religious rights. The third category is non-public, non-private. So who's in the non-public, non-private space? Well, think about slavery. Slaves didn't have a public voice. They didn't have a private place they could retreat to. Think about women until 1920s. 
They didn't have a public voice. And I often say the home was the man's castle and the woman's dungeon. Uh, and literally, a man could beat his wife in his home, and she could not call the police to help. So she was in this non-public, non-private space. Well, you might say, well, that was then. What about now? Well, what about now? Think about undocumented immigrants. Think about ex-offenders. Think about Ferguson. Think about people with disabilities. So we still, in our practice, think about the homeless. We have people who don't have a public voice and don't have a private place to retreat to. And those people, we literally don't see as human. We don't see them as part of us. They are them, both at a conscious and unconscious level. And the fourth category is corporate. And these things work relatively well as long as they stay within a respective places. What's happening now is as we expand this corporate sector and turn everything over to corporate, we actually diminish public space, we diminish private space, and we expand the non-public, non-private. So some of you may have heard about this guy who was a techie named Snowden. Now, Snowden told us the government was watching us. And I feel like the Geico commercial is like, well, everybody knows that. Uh, <laughs> but he told us how sophisticated it was. They were just watching us all the time. And they were spying on us. But how? They were spying on us by getting the stuff from Google and Yahoo who were spying on us before the government was spying on us. They were getting it from large, relatively progressive corporations that's watching our every keystroke. Uh, so there's this twisted way in which we think about public and private. So I want to suggest we need a beloved community. We need a community where, as Cornel West says, justice is the public face of love. How do we actually embrace each other? And how do we build institutions and structures that support that? We talk about a caring economy where we actually have tax breaks for caring for your children or your elderly parents. Where we actually make it untenable to pollute the earth. Where we recognize our interbeing. Where we create structures that actually support life. So it's not just an idea, it's a design. How do we actually make this real in our lives? And I'll end just by saying this. James Baldwin says, if we face something, it doesn't mean we will prevail. But if we don't face it, we can't prevail. So we have to look at these things. We, don't, we have to collectively engage these things. Uh, my father's a Christian minister. He's 94 years old. And one day I was kind of you know, down with all the heavy stuff we have to do. And, uh, he said, what's up, John? And I said, well, I feel a little down because there's so many things on my shoulder. There's so much need on the planet. There's so much that I have to do, and I don't feel like I can do it by myself. And he said, you're not by yourself. And for him, he said, God is with you. I'm not a big theist, but I knew what he was saying, that the universe is conspiring with us, that we're conspiring with each other. 
And I think if we do that well, we not only can save ourselves, we can learn to practice our connection and our love. Thank you.